0: Well, hey, hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Amazing Seller Podcast. This is episode number 330, and today I'm excited because we're going to talk to someone who has built a business from scratch, basically in his dorm room at one time, and then able to now sell it, and he's going to also give us some really awesome tips on sourcing It's funny because whenever I do these interviews, I always kind of have a topic of what we're gonna dig into, which is obviously here how he built a business from scratch and then sold it, right? Like that's what you would think we'd be talking about, which it is. But then we just start to go down these different paths through his journey. And I love doing that because it's so real, it's so raw, and there's a lot of valuable tips that usually get exposed here, and um, that's exactly what happens here. Now, his name is David Bryant, and uh, real, real great guy, smart guy, and uh, just awesome story because he went from nothing, literally in his college dorm room, to uh, wanting to earn a little bit of extra money and then uh, started to uh, figure out this whole sourcing thing and then started to, uh, well... Well, the rest is history, and he's going to kind of let us know what happened and how it all happened, and how he's starting to build another business now after he's already sold one. Uh, so, really awesome. And I think the other thing that you're going to probably pull from this is that you know people out there that are thinking that you know e-commerce or Amazon or any platform for that matter, it's just. It's, you know, everyone's doing it. There's no opportunity out there for anyone. And it's a perfect example of David going back in uh, the game again after he's already sold and kind of exited and starting from scratch again. And uh, he talks a little bit about that at the end. We'll dig into that as well. The show notes to this episode will be at theamazingseller.com forward slash 330. Again, all the show notes will be there. I did want to remind any new listeners or anyone that hasn't attended a live workshop of ours, we're actually going to be doing one this Thursday, depending on when you're listening to this, and that is March 9th, so if you are listening to this on March 8th when it comes out, then you'll be able to register for this upcoming one on the 9th. If not, no big deal. You can still go there and register for an upcoming workshop. We try to do at least two a month, sometimes more, and you can register at theamazingseller.com forward slash workshop and you can get all the details there. So guys, I'm going to stop talking now because I want you guys to listen to this amazing interview on how David went and built a business from scratch and then sold it and all of these awesome valuable tips that he's going to give us along the way. So sit back, relax, enjoy this interview I did with David Bryant. All right. Well, David, thank you so much for—or I'm sorry, Dave. Thank you so much for being on the show. It's so hard whenever I do that because some people are are Bob or Robert. So um, you are Dave, David, whatever, right? But it's Dave. I know it's
1: either.
0: Yeah, you 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 get. I I, I'm I'm assuming you probably turn your head whenever you hear either one of those. Um. So uh, yeah. So anyway, Dave. Um. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it, and I'm very very interested in hearing the entire story. So again, thanks so much for coming on.
1: Yeah, it's a pleasure. And uh, like I say, I'm a huge fan of your podcast. So it's a little bit of an honor to be here.
0: Awesome. Awesome. That's awesome, too. So, okay, cool. So why don't you get people caught up really quickly? I mean, you got a pretty, pretty cool story. And I want to dig in. And I did look through our notes. You know, you and I've been kind of emailing each other back and forth for seems like the past like eight, nine months. And and we finally we finally got it to happen here. And I think when you were first starting to email me, um, you didn't actually you hadn't sold the business at
1: that point, right? No, I had it, And that's a funny thing. So I think it'll give a, an, an interesting backstory to all of this.
0: Yeah, that'll be really cool. And then also something also that you just recently did as a, as kind of a test to get behind the scenes a little bit. I think we can kind of uh, talk about that a little bit
1: too, right? Yes, absolutely. It'll uh, <laughs> reveal the, uh, what that is right now, I guess. No, little, no, uh,
0: no. We'll, we'll let people uh, sit on that one, but it's a pretty interesting story how you uh, figured out a way to, uh, to kind of see how things operate behind Amazon, which is pretty cool. Uh, so, uh, yeah, why don't you take us back a little bit and kind of uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and, and kind of how you got started um, in this uh, in the Amazon space?
1: Sure, we will do. Um, so when I was in university, I started importing a couple of different products from Alibaba. And this was about in 2009. And at the time, I basically did it kind of as a side hustle, um, trying to earn a few hundred uh, dollars a month just to basically pay for my textbooks, uh, pay for a little bit of beer money. Sure, sure. Um, <laughs> And so we were only uh, we were only importing one or two products at the time, and I say we, and that was really just me at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once I graduated, I realized that hey, a few hundred bucks a month is great while you're in university, but uh, once you graduate, you actually need to start earning a full time income. So I realized i either a I'm gonna have to make this a real business um, and get it to a full time income, or b get a full time job. Mm-hmm. And I think as a lot of listeners can probably relate to that. Uh, the thought of going back to work kind of terrified me. <laughs> um, so I said, Hey, I got to make this into, I got to take my little seat of a company and turn it into a real business.
0: Yeah. Well, um, let me ask you this. What were you going to school for? I was going
1: to school for business.
0: Okay. So you were, you were kind of in that, but I mean, did you have an idea of where you were going to go with it or were you just trying to get a business degree and then go out and shop yourself around and maybe a management position or something like that? Like, did you have any idea or was it just, I'm going to go to school to, to get, you know, go get a background in business?
1: I mean, I think I've always been pretty entrepreneurial. Um, kind of in my life. I I think my first business was when I was six years old. I was selling crossword puzzle answers in our class for I think it was for, <laughs> That's great. for quarters. Beautiful. <laughs> so I always uh, I always hoped that I would do something entrepreneurial um, with my business degree and not have to go get a nine to five job per se, but mm. uh, the business degree definitely gave me a little bit of a um, a little bit of a fallback if I needed it.
0: Now, let me ask you this, too, because I'm not familiar with this, but like going to like, you know, for a degree in business, was there any entrepreneurial classes available or was it more or less just business one on one stuff? Like I'm just trying to get like the context there, And I've heard there's now starting to be more and more entrepreneurial stuff.
1: Yeah, there definitely is. When I was starting, it was starting to take off. And normally you specialize in uh, one or two areas. So finance, marketing, accounting, those are kind of the typical Mm -hmm. ones that you would focus in. Um, And as I was kind of finishing up, they're starting to offer an entrepreneurial specialization. Um, I never went through with it. Um, so I never kind of got that hands-on learning with the entrepreneurial focus, but they were just starting to offer it at mm, the time.
0: It's interesting. Yeah, because I, I mean, y- years ago, it was like if you're an entrepreneur, it was kind of just you just didn't want to get a job. You're kind of lazy. yeah, <laughs>
1: <laughs> not nowadays.
0: It's becoming something that's, uh, you know, I guess a little bit more respected, um, which is. I, I think it should be anyway. But anyway. Um, OK, so I just kind of wanted to get a little bit of a backstory there. All right. So um, you're in there. You're doing a little side hustle, making a little bit of cash. You graduate and you're like, all right, I got to do something here. How long was this little side hustle going on for?
1: I think it was going on. Let's see. It probably started around my second or third year in university. So probably about two years.
0: Oh, OK. OK. And, and what gave you the idea that you could even do this?
1: I had worked with a family friend before then, and he was basically uh, basically a yacht broker, and I was kind of managing his eBay listings, his website, oh. um, that type of thing for any time he would list a boat. Um, and I had seen that he had actually had some luck uh, selling different things on eBay, and I kind of heard about the whole Alibaba wave going on at the time, um, so this was kind of a natural fit sure. at that time to break off onto my own.
0: Oh wow, that's awesome! So you kind of had a little insight in that market, and you seen there was an opportunity, and you're like, I could probably get some parts and stuff over here, and we could sell them over here, and 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 make a little bit of cash. That that's pretty cool. Okay, yeah. cool. But again, you had that experience with that with that person that actually got you in interested in that market or that uh, that you know that certain area where you could actually
1: sell product. Yeah, absolutely. But I think I got that job, though, from having a prior interest just out of my own, of my own personal interest, um, kind of managing websites, just doing things at the time. I think I was uh, early teens, just kind of putting up websites for fun and that kind of, you uh, got word through to the family friend that, hey, Dave kind of knows his stuff here. And that's how I kind of landed that job. So I think um, kind of as a takeaway, I guess, for people that, you know, if, if you start even poking around on a real small scale on your own, it's a really good, powerful way to start small and then hopefully grow it into something bigger as time goes on.
0: Yeah, no, I love it. I love it. I mean, you know, it goes, you know, goes back to what I've talked about. All of the different things that's gotten me to where I am today is just, you know just taking action on one thing and starting to have interest in thing learning it and then that turns into something else and i mean you're you're a clear example
1: of that as well so it's it's really awesome yeah. cool no, all right I emphasize that enough i mean when you can start as small as possible you know where you're not relying on it immediately as a full-time income mm. you can you know start off getting just even a few hundred dollars in sales in a month um, you don't have to be getting thousands or tens of thousands of dollars a month uh, to start off. Just try to get that initial traction and kind of uh, prove it to yourself more than anything. Uh, I mean, getting getting off the ground is sometimes the hardest part. And so anything you can do to kind of get that that first little bit of sales traction, that's really should be your focus. Don't worry about, you know doing tens of thousands or millions of dollars in sales. Just try to get those first few sales.
0: I a hundred percent agree. It's like making the first hundred dollars is like, key because you've, you've proven it to yourself. You validated it to yourself. You got a little confidence going now. And, uh, you know, it's like anything, if you're playing basketball and you, you know, you start hitting threes, you're going to start shooting more, more, more threes. Or if you're hitting baseballs, you're going to start hitting baseballs. It's uh it's the same thing. You got to get a taste of it. Um, I love yeah. that. Awesome. All right, cool. So that's uh, okay. So now we're out, of, we're out of uh, college and you're saying, okay, now what? Like, so now where do you go with that?
1: So I'd always kind of learned from just reading books at the time. And there wasn't a lot of uh, private labeling information at the time. But uh, from the books that I'd read, everyone had said you need to go to China to really kind of accelerate things and to uh, really take your importing business to the next level. Um, So this was around 2009, 2010. I kind of worked up the courage to go over to China um, and travel to and traveled to a couple of different trade shows, um, the Shanghai trade show or Shanghai boat show. And then I think there was a fishing show in there too. Okay. Um, and I went there completely naive and it's funny looking back at just how kind of naive I was about the whole process. Um, and I was also a broke student at the time. And <laughs> when I went over there, I couldn't afford to stay in any fancy hotels or anything. I could only, uh, basically afford to stay in a hostel. And typically when you go to China and you meet suppliers you make meetings with them they meet you in your hotel lobby and then you go uh, have lunch at the hotel or whatever and and not want my suppliers to meet me at a five dollar a night hostel so what i would do is i would actually book my hostel as close as possible to the nearest hilton and then as soon as my supplier would give me a ring and tell me that he was in the lobby i'd quickly run over there meet him in the lobby and hopefully he would think that i was actually staying there at the hilton um, oh that's so, funny <laughs> a little so they never seemed to catch on so it, i mean it just oh, goes to so show cool. that uh, you can kind of fake it until you make it
0: Yeah, I like that. That's a great strategy. That's awesome. (laughs) So it it,
1: it worked, obviously, right? Yeah, no, it did. Um, uh, Actually, from that very first trip, I had met uh, two or three different suppliers. And this was, like I say, in 2010. And up until 2016, um, these suppliers were basically the crux of my business. Um, Each one of those suppliers, I made millions of dollars in revenues off of. And the great thing about them was that traveling to China and kind of going to these trade shows and meeting suppliers, a lot of them aren't advertising on Alibaba. So mm-hmm. if you can find a supplier that's not advertising on Alibaba, uh, all of a sudden it's going to decrease your competition 99.999%, mm. just because that's where everybody does go to look for suppliers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, no, I, I agree too. And and okay, so if, if someone doesn't go there though to, uh, you know, to China, I mean, so is there any other things that you would suggest to, to looking for a supplier or an
1: agent? Definitely the biggest hack, if you're not going to go over to China, um, try to find some trade show listings in China. So just Google trade shows, China, you're going to get a list of hundreds of different trade shows in China. And each one of those trade shows typically is going to have um, a directory listing of all the suppliers there. And each one of those directory listings is also going to have their website. So you can see all the suppliers that are exhibiting at a trade show um, in China at the time. So go through those suppliers, simply Google the name of that business and see if they're advertising on Alibaba or not. And if they're not advertising on Alibaba, um, great. you Like I say, you're going to decrease your competition for those products uh, tenfold. And you can also kind of hack it a little bit more and tell them, hey, I found you through XYZ trade show. Uh, Can you give me some prices for these products? And they're going to think that you'd actually met them in person at the trade show. And Mm. they see so many people coming through the trade shows, they can't remember who they met or who they didn't. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's a great way to kind of, uh, give yourself a little bit more credibility, even if it's uh, not necessarily completely true.
0: Right, uh, right, right. No, that makes sense. Yeah, that's actually a really good hack. So to basically look for trade shows that are that are in China, that are going on, and then just going through and looking at all, the, all of the exhibitors that are there, seeing if they have a website, going to the website, seeing what they have. Uh, would you say that most of these that are going to a trade show like this are uh, I guess, uh, reliable or that you would think that aren't just going there and going to be scamming? Or is there ways that we can kind of go through and, and kind of, uh, look a little deeper at their history?
1: I mean, I th- probably a hundred percent of them, 110% of them, uh, are not going to be scammy, um, okay. and I think the same thing goes for Alibaba for the most part too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the big issue that you run into all the time with China is not necessarily being scammed out of your money and just getting, uh, crappy quality products. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. And the trade shows definitely tend to attract uh, a little bit higher quality supplier than on Alibaba. Just on Alibaba, uh, their vetting there isn't necessarily. I mean, they have vetting in pro in place, but there's a little bit more commitment that it takes from a supplier to exhibit at a trade show than to uh, simply set up shop on Alibaba.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. I agree. Yeah, they, they've got more. They've got more invested, and they have to have actually people there. And yeah, no, I I agree. That that's a that's a great that's a great tip though. Um, okay, cool. So that's actually a really good tip. So anyone listening right now, definitely, uh, definitely consider doing that. That'll definitely eliminate, um, a lot of your competition. Um, if you went that route and, and again, would you agree once you create this and I mean, you've kind of already said it, but I want to kind of highlight it again. Once you create a relationship with a, a company like this, uh, it's almost like, uh, you're kind of loyal to each other in a sense to where you now have these people to create future products or the current products all the time.
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, it's funny, the business relationships in China are so much different than we're kind of accustomed to in the West. Um, relationships just matter so much. And I say a lot of people kind of taking that for granted when they're working with Chinese suppliers is that they kind of flop around from one supplier to the next looking for the cheapest price. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you can kind of build those relationships with your suppliers, you know, over the course of a year or two, they um, they're, they're going to give you a lot of favors. I mean. All of a sudden, your orders will become a higher priority for them. They'll ship them out quicker. Uh, Quality will tend to be a little bit higher. Um, You'll get a little bit better discounting. And more importantly, you might even get some exclusive products. They might say, hey, Dave, uh, we're just launching this. Uh, Are you interested in it? And you can basically negotiate to be their uh, sole seller in whatever country you're in, whether it's the U.S., Canada, U.K., wherever.
0: Oh, that's great. Yeah, no, that's, that's really good. know I, I believe relationships is everything and anything in life, right? If we can have that good relationship, uh, you know, we can, we can definitely uh, have a little bit of an advantage there. And I think that's uh, exactly what you're saying. So that that's cool. Um, okay. So, all right, now let's, let's move on a little bit. And so where do you go from here now? Now you've, you've got a really good supplier. You've already kind of established a relationship. Um, where do you start to direct your focus at this point? So I
1: think one of the big things that I did that kind of helped me succeed was I picked a really good niche. Um, so boating, the great thing about boating is number one, uh, the people that are your typical customer have a lot of money and uh, they're looking to spend it. Mm. Uh, but more importantly, there's also a lot of products that I was able to branch off in boating. Um, so, you know, you could, uh, some of the biggest boating companies in the world have hundreds of thousands of different products. So it was kind of natural for me. I mean, I could take this one niche and at the t- at the time, it started off as two products, but over time, I grew that to about two hundred different products, wow. and each one of them was just this just kind of a natural fit. Uh, you know, if I sell a boat anchor to somebody, I can sell the anchor line, and if I sell the anchor line to somebody, I can sell the boat fenders, and you know, you can just kind of iterate over and over in the same industry. And I, um, again, I, it's the biggest thing I can recommend to people is you know, pick a really good industry that you can. Um, not just upsell the people, but also sell accessories and add-ons too. And it's going to become a lot easier.
0: Mm, Yeah, no, I think that's uh, that's huge. Um, Now, did you start selling directly on your own website first before you went to Amazon or eBay or any of those other channels?
1: Um, At the time, Amazon actually wasn't really, um, I don't even think they had the FBA program in, in 2010. So it was majority eBay um, and a little bit on the website. And over time, uh, for better or worse, that <laughs> eBay slowly uh, took second seat to Amazon, and it went from the point where it was like zero percent Amazon in 2010 to last year where it was well over 60 percent of our sales were coming through Amazon.
0: Wow, wow! But but you you really then you initially launched on eBay?
1: Yeah, initially launched on eBay, kind of like what people are doing now on Amazon. Uh, I did the same thing, but on eBay.
0: Mm,
1: Okay, And eBay is actually, there's certain categories that eBay still has a pretty good presence on uh, for third-party sellers. Um, I think a lot of people overlook eBay, but there's certain categories. eBay Motors is still uh, pretty powerful, even compared to Amazon. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, if you're selling certain products uh, and you're selling them on Amazon, branching off and selling them an eBay. That's still not a bad channel to sell on actually.
0: Yeah. I guess the only thing that comes in is then you are going to be fulfilling it yourself or someone on your team. Um, you're not going to be storing it, but, uh,
1: yeah. you can ship from Amazon though. Is a, that's true. That's uh, true. You can yeah. connect
0: now through your FBA. You're right. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Actually, that's, that's a great point. Um, so you can technically do that. So you can ship all your inventory into Amazon and you can still fulfill it uh, in an eBay yeah. order and connect it over. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. Okay, cool. So, all right. So you, you've, you initially launched on eBay. Did it, did it right off the bat? Like, I mean, was it already starting to, I mean, I know you already started like before that selling, like, did you build on those two products that
1: you currently already had there? Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, it went from two products to four to eight and basically i just kept trying to more or less double both the number of products and uh the order quantity each order Mm. Um, so it grew from two products and just kind of scaled up uh over the years to uh, about 200 products wow and and my kind of strategy was when i was starting off uh you know i would try to get as small of an order in as possible maybe it's even 10 or 20 pieces uh if i could do it you know try selling those and you know, most of them actually sold fairly well. And if they didn't sell well, uh, you know, you stuck with 10 or 20 items, not a thousand different items. And Mm. so it's pretty minimal risk.
0: Yeah. Well, and again, that comes down to though, like, so were you taking something and strictly taking something that was basically on the shelf and then just branding it with your, Uh, branding or were you customizing it or modifying it at all? I'm just for 10 or 12 units. I, I know people are probably saying like, well, how the heck would you differentiate that? Um, but what you're saying too, is you had a little bit of exclusivity because you had, um, you know, you weren't on Alibaba finding these, you were actually off to the side a little bit. So it might be harder to locate that product. Is that true?
1: Um, no, a lot of the products were simply off-the-shelf products, but uh, a couple of ways that we we're differentiating them aside from actually the product, uh, number one was the packaging. Uh, okay. Especially in our industry, just it, even a lot of the established guys tend to ship in really terrible packaging, just a brown cardboard box. Um, okay. And what happens there is that people just aren't, uh, they don't feel great about leaving a great review for it, uh, just packaging is kind of the first impression, so Um, That was definitely one of our main focuses was making sure the packaging was uh, fairly good. And then the second thing was just really improving the marketing of it online. Uh, So, again, uh, in the boating industry, a lot of the guys, you know, they have one picture and one sentence describing it. Um, So, you know, we would take six, seven, eight photographs, really good photographs showing every possible angle possible, um, giving lots of specifications for the product, you know, every length, width uh, imaginable and also giving a really good description. So, um, yeah, the packaging and also the online marketing for it. Yeah. It's really, you were really,
0: you were really giving everyone like everything that they would be thinking. You were kind of like going through and making sure that every, every question that you could think of or that you've been asked in the past, you kind of threw it in there that way. It was like, you guys really knew your product. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I like that a lot. And, and from there you're saying like just packaging alone Uh, A lot of people that feel perceived value might be a little higher. Um, The experience was a little bit better. At that point in time, if you were just selling on eBay, did you do any type
1: of follow-up with your customers through email or anything? In the beginning, no. Um, I mean, the good thing about the eBay platform is that you are given quite a bit of flexibility in following up with them, Mm -hmm. uh, Post Amazon, where they kind of own all the information. Um, Even to this day, you still get access to the eBay's, uh, to the customer's email on eBay, so you know, there's certain things that you can and can't do with that information. But, uh, near the end, what we're doing is definitely, we would, uh, we would send a follow-up uh, email with different products. And also, uh, one of the things that we did really well is that we gave people the option to download an ebook from us, um, on voting and people download that ebook and get put into our sales funnel, um, for our emails.
0: Oh, okay. Okay, cool. And did, did you find you, you guys getting, uh, additional sales from your follow-ups?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Every customer that you get, every time that we send out an email blast of, you know, 100 or 1,000 emails, 1%, it seems, kind of uh, typically through and through are going to actually buy from uh, from that email blast. Mm. So every email that we can get on there is going to bring incremental revenue over time. Mm. And what
0: was the price point on your products generally? I mean, what did you start out with and then what did you – did you graduate to higher products or
1: more expensive products? Well, if anything is – the first product I imported was a boat anchor and it sounds absurd that you're shipping this boat anchor. From,
0: <laughs> you know, from, How heavy was the boat anchor, by the way,
1: they were there. I mean, they're heavy enough to hold a boat, but just light enough to be able to ship uh, UPS ground. Wow. So they range anywhere from 20 to 50 pounds. Wow. Um, uh, what was the question again? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. So <laughs> the, the price points,
1: so like, yeah, the price points. So on average, I mean, boating products tend to be a little bit, uh, tend to be a little bit higher price. So the average price point was about $200. Um, and I think, uh, as of last year, our average item, it was just above $125. So kind of came down over time. I think, uh, as I grew more confidence to import some more of the more competitive items, uh, those tend to also be the lower priced items. So I started high and then came down over time.
0: And then what, what type of margins were you looking at?
1: The gross margins were typically they're marked up about three times. So okay. if if a product was fifty dollars, we'd sell it for one hundred and fifty dollars. Gotcha. Now of course, you have shipping and everything on top of that. I think our net margins at the end of the day, um, and this is after, you know, uh, employee salaries, warehousing, office space, yada, 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 um, it was about 13 or 14 okay. percent. So you go from a gross margin of well over 50 percent mm. uh, to the, by the time the smoke clears, it was like 13, 14 percent.
0: Right, right. But that's again, that's a- after everything has kind of been been, uh, you know, accounted for you know, yeah. all your marketing and all your, you know, like you said, employees or yeah. how, how big was the outfit, um, before,
1: um, before you exited? So last year we were basically on uh, track, uh, to do just under $2 million in sales. Wow. Uh, yeah.
0: Oh, that's pretty, that's pretty good. And how many employees did it take to do that?
1: So I had two full-time employees, uh, one customer service uh, person, and then one uh, basically techie person who managed all the eBay listings, Amazon listings, uh, and all the stuff that goes with that. And then we basically had a full-time person working at a 3PL that we had rented uh, in, Washington, in Washington State. So we used Amazon FBA, but we also had a 3PL that uh, handled all the inbound shipments from China and doing a little bit of uh, other fulfillment in-house. Oh, okay. Okay. So it wasn't a huge team. I mean, you no, had- no, not at all. I mean, I think we could have grown probably to double that size with the same amount of people.
0: Okay. Okay. So, I mean, so th- things were things were moving along and, I mean, how often were you thinking about adding new products? Was it something that you guys were like, you know, we're just going to have a like kind of like a bucket full of products that we want to launch and then we're going to slowly launch out more? Like, was there a plan in place for that or, you know, like any type of uh, idea of where you were going with that as far as like products that you're going to be adding?
1: Well, so in our industry, we're a little bit different than a lot of people where a lot of probably your listeners rely upon the Christmas season. And in the boating world, Christmas is basically summer for us. Mm. Um, so about six, seven months before uh, the start of our season, I would kind of do our yearly plans. Um, I'd put a growth number on uh, what we want to do for growth rate. And then basically, you know, if we wanted to double in size, I knew more or less, we probably needed to import twice as many products. Mm. Um, So that's what I would do. Um, You know, if we want to grow 25%, then we need to grow our product line 25%. Um, And obviously you have some cash flow problems there too, um, which you always need to take into into consideration. Uh, You know, you might want to import a million different products, but if you don't have the money to do it, you can't do it.
0: Yeah, you know, like that, that definitely can be an issue with physical products, you know, and were you still, were you still doing the small orders if you could to, to, to roll these products out? Or were you, were you saying like, we're always going to start with a couple hundred units or more?
1: No, no. Um, yeah. Uh, up until the very end, we were doing, you know, 20, 20, 20, 25 pieces, uh, to start an item if we could. And the great thing was that, we had such strong relationships with our suppliers, they basically, they had no minimum or, minimum order quantities, mm. which is a really nice thing. And when you're first starting off with a the supplier, uh, they typically have some absurd minimum order quantities. So when you can more or less kind of ignore that, it really helps. Um, so again, you know, kind of forming those long relationships with suppliers that you meet through Alibaba or trade shows or wherever, uh, you really start to get benefits from it, uh, especially down the road.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think we should definitely highlight that because it's important with the relationships. And I think that you've proven that, that you're able to have this low minimum order. And that's allowing you to roll out more SKUs without having to really go so deep within one SKU. And I think that's huge yeah. um, to be able to do that. Uh, I think that yeah. is a huge sticking point for a lot of people is because you get a minimum what you have to order 500 or 1,000. Uh, or more sometimes, you know, and um, that's where people get that. Oh my gosh, it's like, it's scary now in the same breath. I mean, if you're only ordering, let's say that you were able to order 20 units of something and they're costing you 50 bucks to someone, that's, that's going to be a good chunk of change to get started. Now you had some cash flow where you're coming in, you can reinvest some of that. So that also helped that, but, but still, I mean, for you, it was a lower amount for the amount of volume that you're doing. So it, it it allowed you to rapidly, um, you know, increase the amount of SKUs that you had, you know, in the marketplace, which I think is, is, is big for a lot of, for a lot of people listening. I mean, just, and it doesn't hurt to ask. I think again, if people are listening, it's like, ask, you know, try to negotiate, tell people that, you know, or tell that supplier that you're doing a test run. And, uh, you know, and if it works, then you're going to be ordering, you know, a lot more. Um, and again, it all comes down to that relationship.
1: And kind of on that note too, um, the strategy I take forward, even in uh, a new business I'm starting is that, you know, a lot of people ordered one sample item from China and they want to see the quality. And it's a little bit of a farce when you do that, because you're always if you order one sample from China, it's always going to be their best sample. It's going to be perfect quality. So it doesn't really prove anything uh, nine times out of 10. So what I do is I always instead of doing a sample, uh, ordering one sample, what I'll do is I'll order 10 or 20 samples. And mm. when you're ordering a sample, normally they're pretty. They'll agree to whatever you whatever quantity you say. So if I have 10 samples that I order, bring in. I can actually try to sell those on Amazon and see if there's traction on them. With one product, you can't really try that on Amazon because, well, you only have one product, and that doesn't really prove anything if you sell it or you don't sell it. Uh, But if you bring in 10 products, you know, if you sell a lot of those products in a week, you know you probably have a pretty good product, and all of a sudden ordering 100 pieces or even 200 pieces, that doesn't become quite as scary um, as if you did it with absolutely no sales history to begin with.
0: Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great point. My, my question is this, and maybe the listeners are, are, are thinking this as well. So you said like packaging is a lot to do with what, you know, differentiates yourself as far as like, the, you know, on the surface. So how do you do that with a product that you're only getting 20 units? Do you have like standard size boxes that things fit in, that they're all branded and, you know, they're all, they, they look beautiful or like, how would you do that with that test run?
1: Well, a couple of good, a couple of good little things that you could do. So you're not going to be able to get a full colored box um, for 20 items. That's, nobody's going to do that. Exactly. Uh, but what you can do is you can get a sticker a lot of times made. Uh, you know, you can do those on a pretty small run, mm-hmm. um, you know, 25 cents a piece, and you can put that sticker on the item box and all of a sudden it looks 10 times better than it's a simple, brown box with no sticker.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: I agree. And then on top of that, um, a lot of products come without any instructions. And it just frustrates people to no end when they get a product, even if it's the most basic product, people like to have some instructions with it, uh, you know, a little bit of use guidelines for it. So every product that we do pretty much uh, we would do up a you know a one or two page word document uh, just showing how to use it, you know, showing them what they get with it, uh, giving a little bit of uh, background on our company, and it just adds to the entire experience with the product. And uh, you know, you can get that every supplier is happy to include a little one or two page document in the box with the item. So mm. those are some things that you can do even re- with a really small run of products.
0: Yeah, and so what I'm gathering though is so really you are kind of like picking through their their line that they already have created. And then you're just kind of picking the next ones that you want to launch, getting a small order sent They might send it in a brown box and you're just going to have like your sticker, your logo on there that makes it look a little nicer. Your packaging, they can throw in the same box and, uh, and and you're done and you're off to the races. Is that, is that true?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. That's it's really good. It's, it's a simple model. Uh, okay. You can grow
1: up to, you know, a little bit more uh, prestigious packaging as time goes on. But to begin, I mean, that...
0: Well, that's what I'm saying. For testing... It does yeah. wonders
1: uh, for getting reviews and yeah. uh, just getting overall better satisfaction from your customers.
0: So that that's the next question. So let's say you get 20 units and you're going to test those 20 units. What's your first plan of attack? Like, what's, what's it look like for you to actually bring that to the market? Um, you know, get some sales. You just you start pay per click immediately. Like, do you give a blast out to your your list and then say, hey, we got a new product. Here's a discount code, and you boost the sales that way. Like, how do you how do you do that?
1: So what we were doing, um, we basically had three channels: our website, eBay, and Amazon. Um, so obviously, the first thing would be to launch them on all three channels uh, to begin with. Mm-hmm. Second thing we would do is obviously immediately turn on Amazon PPC for the products, um, and Amazon PPC still does wonders uh next thing we would do with amazon if you have an amazon market uh what is it called an ams account basically yep. it allows you to advertise your products on competitors products pages so the url for that is ams.amazon.com so it's a secondary uh advertising platform uh, uh on amazon aside from ppc and after that we would turn on google adwords and then finally we would do an email blast to our email list, just letting them know that the products are in stock. And a lot of times we wouldn't actually even advertise our website listings because, yes, we save the commission fees on that, but we really want people to go to the Amazon Mm. page, buy them, and hopefully these are happy customers in the past, so they're going to be more inclined to leave positive reviews. And so we say, hey, you can buy it on uh, this Amazon link right here. And those customers that we, the pre-existing customers are going to be more prone to leave positive, re- positive reviews, even if you don't ask for it. Mm. Um, and then on top of that too, when we launch a product, we also tend to launch at a little bit lower price point than uh, what we, our ideal price point. So we might have a kind of long-term price point of $150, but we'd probably launch it around $100. And you lose a little bit of money in the beginning, mm-hmm. but you build up that sales traction uh, to begin with. And people tend to get a little bit higher value, um, at a lower price point. So again, they're going to be more inclined to leave a positive review because they're getting a really good deal.
0: Yeah, no, that's, that's really, uh, that's really smart. And, uh, let me ask you this on, on the eBay side of things, when you would launch it there, was there anything, anything special that you would do there to get that thing launched? Or do you just list it, make sure the keywords are in the title and everything's well optimized there, good pictures, all that stuff, and then just send it off or like, what would you do there differently on eBay if any?
1: Yeah. With eBay, there's not a lot that you can do. They've, uh, they, they don't have the advertising options that Amazon does have. Um, they have some stuff buried in there for certain sellers, but it's definitely not the level that Amazon's at. So with, with eBay, it was pretty much just launch it, uh, set it and forget it.
0: Mm, Okay. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, they, they definitely don't make it (laughs) nearly as powerful as, as Amazon, but, uh, but again, by putting it on that channel, you have you know you have people there that would be willing to buy it that are looking there that aren't looking on Amazon. So why not put it there? Yeah. And it's not that hard to do once you create the listing. Um, yeah. And you mentioned Google AdWords. How much were you spending there? Do you think? I mean, you don't have to give me numbers, but I mean, like percentage wise, like how much were you focusing on Google AdWords?
1: I mean, it became less and less as time went on. I mean, in 2012, 2013, it was uh, a godsend. I mean, you could put you could bid on pretty much any keyword and it would be profitable. Mm-hmm. Um, near the end it was so competitive that it was tough to be profitable for a lot of keywords. Um, so at the end, I think we were spending about $2,500 a month on PPC and I think we were probably break even maybe, uh, maybe a little bit profitable. Um, Mm -hmm. But again, I, most of the money that we were putting on Google AdWords, we are basically uh, shifting out to Amazon PPC because return on Amazon PPC is just through the roof right now.
0: Mm, no, I 100 I percent agree with that. Now, the other question is, how were you collecting email addresses from Amazon or were you?
1: No, Amazon, we couldn't collect uh, email addresses. Okay. So that's obviously, that was one of the challenges that we ran into with, uh, as Amazon became more and more of our sales, there was really nothing we could do to collect Amazon email addresses.
0: Okay. Yeah. I mean, I just didn't know if you had an insert card in there or something, uh, you know, get on our VIP list or something like that to get, you know, future discounts or something like that. Um, yeah. We didn't proactively
1: do any of that. Um, uh, one of the other good things that you can do too, if you're launching a product on product on Amazon, uh, you have a brand name, so you, you know, maybe it's Scott Vokers products. Uh, as long as you have a website called Scott products.com, most people that go to Amazon, they're going to Google that brand name mm. before they actually purchase. So mm-hmm. they'll end up on your website and maybe you have a discount going on your website and they might actually buy on your website um, instead of on Amazon. So as long as your brand name you have a website that matches that brand name, people on Amazon can more or less indirectly find it uh, on your website.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense. Okay, cool. Now, <laughs> you and I talked up to this point a little bit. You, you took me through that, that story, but then something changed. Something happened. And yeah. I want to hear about this because this was not in the discussion when we talked about eight, nine months ago, and now something happened. And again, this is just how things happen. So lead me up to the point where, you were presented with a potential offer?
1: Yeah, so um, in, what was it, February of 2016, I decided to list a company for sale. Now I had actually, uh, I think like all business owners, the idea of an exit at some point, it always kind of run through my mind. Um, and then we had a daughter come along the way about a year and a half ago. Um, so at some point, you just decide that it'd be nice to get a little bit of, uh, little bit of money off the table and into your bank account. Um, so in February of 2016, I listed the company for sale through a website broker or website brokerage. And in October of last year, it uh, we sold the company and everything's uh, said and done. Wow. That's that's pretty amazing. Yeah. And and,
0: and that wasn't even in the plans. Uh, like you said, when you were emailing me, it was wasn't even really thought of. I mean, maybe in the way back of the mind, but it wasn't really in in motion and then, uh, and then this happened and then you're kind of like, okay, well, <laughs> so now I guess we got what we wanted to get. And how was that process, by the way, how was the, uh, going through kind of, you know, proving your numbers and validating all of that stuff or verifying all that stuff and then, uh, actually closing the deal. What kind of process was that like?
1: Well, it was definitely long. So it, I didn't imagine it'd take that long. Um, like I mentioned, we, uh, we listed in February of 2016 and it closed on October 26, 2016. So, um, that's nearly 10 months in between. So it was a long process. Mm-hmm. Um, so from the time we listed it in February, uh, to the time that we got what they call a letter of intent, someone that has basically said, Hey, I'll buy, I'll buy this as long as your numbers match up with what you've told me, mm-hmm. uh, we got that letter of intent in June. So it took about five months to get that initial offer. Uh, and then we went through what you call due diligence and that lasted about three months. There were some complicating factors, not on our end, but just through the buyer's end that kind of uh, elongated that um, the due diligence was really easy. And the due diligence is basically just, Ah, uh, the buyer is confirming all the numbers that you said uh, match up. And when you're selling an e-commerce business, especially one that has Amazon as a big sales channel, it's quite easy to verify those because you can basically set up a user in your Amazon account. They can log in there and they can confirm uh, every number that you've said. Yeah. Uh, they don't have to fear that you've manipulated those numbers at all. Okay. And the same thing goes for PayPal. Uh, you can give them a PayPal user account and they can go in there and kind of verify all the transactions. Um, so the due diligence was actually really easy. Um, they, they were able to match up uh, everything that we said 100%. Um, so there wasn't really any issues there. Um, kind of grinding out the actual uh, terms of the deal, that is what took the time. But in terms of actually verifying everything, uh, that was a breeze. Hmm.
0: That's cool. That's really cool. How was the feeling once it was all said and done?
1: Uh, Bittersweet, I think. I mean, obviously, it's uh, when after 10 months you finally get to that point, it's thrilling. But at the same point, uh, uh, you know, it was my baby that I kind of uh, started in university and it was the first business I'd owned and the only business I'd owned. So it was definitely a little bit bittersweet in that regard. Um, But uh, it's also nice to have a little bit of money off the table. I think I can gives me a little bit of flexibility on my next project to uh, take a little bit more risk than I might. Uh, not necessarily take otherwise. If all my money was still on the table, so mm. in that regard, it's exciting. Uh,
0: and and I guess my last question would be: Is there any
1: is there any regrets to selling it at this point? No, I don't think so. I mean, uh, I, I still think there's a lot of meat on the Amazon bones. So mm. uh, definitely, I'm starting. I have something in the process that I'm starting now, um, and it's going to be Amazon again. I'm sure is going to be a big portion of the sales. Um, so I still think it's relatively easy to reiterate and just kind of do the things that I took the first time around and reapply them to a new business and uh, hopefully be even more successful.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I guess now that you've kind of been through that whole, uh, you know, the whole process and everything like, so, so, again, you've alluded to you're, you're starting something else, something new, and you're going to start that business. And it's kind of probably exciting. It's a new project. It's a challenge a little bit. I mean, it's, it's funny how, like you want to get to a certain place. And then once you get that place, you're like, okay, now what? Um, Uh and I think it's kind of cool to kind of rebuild and restart over. I think we always need that to keep, to kind of keep pushing ourselves and, and learning and growing. But, uh, you know, so how confident are you with this, with this new brand that you're, that you're launching that, uh, that it'll be successful in, in your eyes?
1: Uh, I'm a hundred percent confident. I, like I say, I think, um, a lot of the skills that I've learned along the way, I think are still a hundred percent applicable now, even as much as they were in 2010 when I first started. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't have any doubt how long it takes me. That's obviously a variable that, you know, I'd like to, I'd like to get the new company to the point of the old company within, a year and a half or so. Uh, whether I could actually achieve that or not, I, that remains to be seen. But again, I, th- I think the business model that I proved on my other business can easily be look- replicated to other businesses.
0: Mm, no, I, I agree. You've learned a ton through that process. And now you can apply that to just about anything. And, uh, uh, you know, you've again, it's something that you can't really teach in a classroom. You got to actually go through and, and do it and, you know, have the ups and the downs and you know, all that to, to go along with it. Um, is there anything that you've learned through that though, that you're doing differently in this business, um, to speed that process up a little bit?
1: Um, I mean, I think just launching more products, uh, Mm -hmm. quicker, definitely, uh, the more products that you can roll with sooner, the, the more sales that you're going to get, um, uh, it'd be nice to be able to sell a million dollars worth of one SKU, but the truth of it is that you need to, you know, that needs to be 10, 20, 30, even more SKUs than that. Um, so, you know, I think just launching more SKUs quicker, that definitely is going to help a lot. Um, I think in terms of the actual marketing of the Amazon pages, the eBay pages, the website pages, um, I learned a lot there. I mean, photos are absolutely everything. Uh, and while we we're, we're always pretty good with our photos, uh, definitely near the end, uh, I've learned a lot in terms of photography, uh, you know, just what people want to see and how to present things to really improve the conversion. So uh, definitely on the new products, better photography, uh, same thing goes for video. At, you're kind of limited on Amazon with video, but uh, on eBay and your website, it's still really powerful. So definitely more video to go with the products, I think it's going to help a lot. Um, so, yeah, I think all those things are going to help. Uh, Uh, help achieve success really quick.
0: And is, is the, is the same, um, strategy as far as launching again, low amount to start to test, to validate, is that all still the same?
1: Yes, absolutely. Okay. Okay, cool. I plan on going over to China, um, for the Canton Fair in April, um, again, meeting face to face with some suppliers, uh, because they're a little bit more prone to give lower orders when they actually meet you face to face. Again, they think you're going to be a little bit bigger customer. Uh, and you, you can fly over to China right now for about 600 bucks. So it's money <laughs> well invested.
0: Yeah, no, that's and it's something that, uh, it's, it's kind of on my list, but kind of not. I'm not, I, I mean, I, I want to be able to go to meet people in person, but in the same breath, I don't know something. To, I just, I'm me personally, I'm just not a fan of, of going, I've got other places I'd rather go. Um, that's now that doesn't wonderful. mean, now that doesn't mean that I wouldn't have someone go on my behalf, <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? That, that we can work out. I can pay for the trip. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, it's just I don't know. There's uh, I don't know. I'd rather go to I think Australia or something. Uh-
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. Well, for a vacation, I agree. There's certain, there's certain parts of China which aren't great for vacationing. Um, yeah,
0: yeah, no, I hear you. Um, okay, cool. This has been this has been really really good because um, you know there's nothing really. It, super advanced at what you're saying. It's like yep. it's pretty basic. Um, yep. You you pick a good market. You you know you you learn a little bit about that market. You you pick good products. You find good suppliers, and then you launch products. Uh, you know small amounts, and just try to get yep. SKUs up and launched, and just do your you know do your basic optimization. Do your you know do good listings. Run pay per click, and uh, and just keep repeating that process. And uh, yeah. it's like you said, and you're going to have some winners, you're going to have some losers and you pick the ones that are winners and you, you stick with them. Is there any is there any criteria when you're looking at products to say, I want to go after stuff that has a certain amount of volume or do you just kind of, you kind of build off of a product line?
1: I mean, I'm kind of going for lower volume rather than high, high um, moving products. Mm. Uh, just for the fact that lower volume products tend to attract less competition. Yeah, I agree. Um, I'm also... I'm typically trying to find a little bit bigger, bulkier products that you can't ship uh, via air from China, mm-hmm. just because I know again that's going going to eliminate a lot of people, especially Chinese sellers um, shipping directly from China to the customers um, off Amazon or wherever. Um, so again, uh, lower lower popularity items and also bulkier items, which again it sounds to, seems to go against the grain of what a lot of people say, but. Um, you, know, you get a lot less competition for those products I think that's where there's still a lot of meat on the bones for Amazon is these uh, you know less popular products which are a little bit bulkier
0: mmm but the, okay so now the one question I would say to you is like okay so how are you doing a smaller amount by C you
1: know with multiple that? items
0: okay so you're gonna do multiple items. you might do 10 SKUs, but you know, 25 of each. I got you. Okay. And that's one thing I'm
1: looking for with the suppliers that hopefully they have a big enough product catalog where I can import 10 products, 10 different products, 10 10 or 20 pieces.
0: Okay. Okay. You know, that makes sense. That makes total sense.
1: Yeah. You're totally right. I mean, you can't import 10 items, uh, by sea of just one product. Right,
0: right, right, right. Yeah. It just wouldn't make sense. Um, (laughs) it wouldn't make sense. All right. Now let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about this little experiment that you did. Um, I think that was interesting. You know, a guy that sells a a business, uh, you know, exits a business, you know, gets a pretty good paycheck uh, and then decides to do something pretty crazy. So why don't you talk about that?
1: So I had always wanted to get a tour of an Amazon warehouse, and uh, you can actually get a tour of an Amazon warehouse. They, but they only do them at select times of the year, and they only do them at a couple of their different warehouses. And the wait lists are absolutely terrible. Like, it's impossible to actually really get a tour of an Amazon warehouse unless you wait two or three years. Um, so I was reading my paper after I'd exited the company and seeing that Amazon was hiring during uh, the holiday season. So <laughs> I applied and they basically hired me on the spot to be what they call a picker. So I'd be the person uh, walking around the Amazon FBA warehouse and picking all the orders uh, that people had ordered.
0: <laughs> that is really, really awesome. Uh, so you got hired. I mean, what was the interview like?
1: Uh, they basically hired you on the spot. Uh, the thing with Amazon during the holidays is that they are so desperate for workers. Um, they will pretty much hire anybody. I mean, um, if my daughter year and a half, um, had a social insurance number, they would have hired her on the spot. So they are just incredibly desperate for workers at that time. And, uh, uh, funny thing with Amazon is too, that during those, during the peak season, what they call it, uh, from Black Friday to Christmas, they make everybody work incredibly grueling hours, like six days a week, 10 hours a day uh, for a month straight. And that's completely involuntary overtime. Everybody has to do it.
0: Mm. That's uh, that's insane. Uh, what I, and that, that was going to be my question. So what was it like for you to be there working like in your own head? I mean, obviously, you're saying to yourself, I'm glad I don't have to do this all the time. <laughs> I'm doing this as an experiment. I can get out of here tomorrow if I want to. But uh,
1: what was it like for you? Um, I mean, it was, uh, was kind of neat seeing how the sausage was made, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, until you actually go to one of these warehouses and actually walk around, you have absolutely no idea how big these things are. Um, I mean, this warehouse, on average, on an average day, uh, a 10-hour day, you can walk six or seven miles just picking packages. Wow. And, I mean, it can take you 15 minutes to walk from basically your starting point to the end of the warehouse to pick an item. Uh, and then another 15 minutes back. So, I mean, it can take you 30 minutes, uh, just to pick one item. And that was the other thing I I expected to go in there and see a lot of automation. Um, Jeff Bezos is always talking about drones and spaceships and this and that. Uh, these warehouses are still almost a hundred percent, uh, run by people like me manually walking around picking items. Wow. So it's still incredibly laborious manual labor that goes into these warehouses.
0: And, and, okay, so, like, walk me through that. So, like, did you get, like, a list or something on, like, a a little device, and then you would go to a certain bay and then scan it and then bring it somewhere? Like, how would that work?
1: So, with Amazon, um, basically, the the lifeline of everybody that works at that warehouse is this little barcode scanner. And there's a few different functions at an Amazon warehouse. There's the pickers, like me. uh, Like I mentioned, I walk around picking the items. There's a packer who takes those items that I picked. And they put them in boxes and they tape them up and they, uh, get them ready for the outbound team who then takes those boxes and loads them onto the containers, uh, the UPS containers or the FedEx container, um, and trucks them away. Um, so that barcode scanner is kind of the lifeline of everybody that works there. And Mm -hmm. in my case, um, I would be given, uh, this barcode scanner would give me a list of about 50 different items that I would need to pick, um, Over the course of uh, that segment of the day that I was working. Mm -hmm. So typically, they'd expect you to pick about 50 items an hour. Um, So I'd walk around uh, throughout the day, just pick those items. And the other thing I should mention too, that uh, I was working at what they call an oversized warehouse. So you might have noticed that a lot of times in even a single city, Amazon will have multiple warehouses. Mm -hmm. And why this is, is that Amazon has. Uh, a warehouse for oversized items and they have a warehouse just for regular items so i was working at the oversized warehouse and like i mentioned i'd be typically expected to pick about 50 items an hour Um, over the course of a 10-hour day that would work out to about 500 different items wow wow
0: that's crazy so then you would take that package and then bring it to your packing person
1: yeah, so there'd be uh, basically a parking lot <laughs> that you park all your packages. Um, there's just a, a series of ants basically walking around picking packages and bringing them back to uh, bring them back to the parking bay, and all the packers would then go and take the items, uh, uh, box them up, tape them up, and ship them on to the customers. Wow! wow. It, it was amazing uh, the types of things at this warehouse. Like uh, that's one thing that kind of opened my eyes, especially for my next business, is that. Amazon can handle pretty much any product. I mean, we would ship statues without a box or anything, like a statue four feet tall. And they were somehow figuring out a way to ship this on to the customer. So uh, if you wanted to sell statues, you can ship them into Amazon and they will figure out a way to store them, pack them and ship them on to customers. So, um, I mean, you can ship anything you want into Amazon and they will figure out a way to package them. Wow. That is,
0: that's pretty crazy. It's a pretty crazy story that you actually did that. So uh, are you, are you glad you did?
1: Yeah, I am. Uh, the funny thing is actually it's, uh, been about a month since I worked there and they still haven't paid me though. Are uh, you kidding me? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have to go on there and, uh, talk to them to see what happened. But, uh, yeah.
0: Uh, were, were you, were you hired as a, as a temp or did, did you just leave?
1: Uh, they hire everybody on. So with Amazon, they hire everybody on as a temporary worker, basically on a three month contract. Okay. Um, and uh, basically, you have a pretty strict quota that you need to meet a packages each day uh, and the top 10 percent they'll basically keep and hire them on as full time Amazon employees. Uh, and then the other 80 percent or so, they'll just keep rehiring as a temporary worker and then the bottom 10 percent they'll drop.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. OK, so they're trying to weed out uh, their top performers.
1: Yep, we know the weeds and uh, pick the flowers. Yeah, there say. you
0: go. There you go. Well, hey, Dave, this has been this has been awesome. I mean, we went in a lot of different directions, and I think you gave a lot of great insight um, as far as like just starting a business out of your your college dorm for crying out loud, and then uh, and then building something into a sizable business to then exit, and then learning a ton, and then starting a brand new one, and going to work for Amazon just as an experiment. So. Dude, man, it's, it's been fun. This has been great. Um, we'll probably have to follow up again just to see what, what else you've done. Uh, um, is there any last, is there any last little bits of advice or tips that you'd like to give someone that's, uh, whether they're just getting into this business or whether they're, they're starting to sell right now and, and, and they want to, uh, you know, to continue to grow.
1: Um, like I think we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, you know, start off, uh, as quick as you can, get the, get those first few sales. I mean, uh, you can, even if you're doing hundred bucks a month in sales, just try to sell your first product, mm. uh, get started, um, and then iterate over and over. And once you get that first sale, I guarantee you, you're going to be so much more motivated to actually take this thing to the next level, uh, way more than if you, uh, just think about it, uh, for probably longer than you should. So just try to get off and off and running as soon as you can.
0: Yeah, no that's awesome. Um, and if anyone had any questions, should they go anywhere special or should they just go to the comments of this this post and maybe you can you can go in there and, and answer any questions?
1: Yeah, they can uh, comment on on uh, this post and I'm happy to I'll keep my eye out there and happy to reply there and uh, they can also check out my blog chineseimporting.com
0: chineseimporting.com. Sounds awesome. Well, Dave, this has been awesome. I really do appreciate it. Finally, we got to hook up. I know you and I have been going back and forth, back and forth a little bit with emails. We finally got to hook up and uh, this has been fun. And uh, I'll definitely be be, uh, catching back up with you because I know that you'll be having some exciting things to report. So once again, man, I want to just say thank you. I do appreciate it.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me.
0: All right, so another great interview. Man, I tell you, every time I get off of these, I just say, wow because there's a lot of nuggets in there. And again, I could have these conversations privately, but I choose to air them on the podcast. That's what I want to do. And it's funny because I was just in Dallas and I met up with about 40 TASers. Uh, we had a little meetup there, an unofficial meetup, I called it because it was just us kind of hanging out and, you know, kind of shooting the breeze a little bit. And a lot of people said, Scott, I love it how you have guests on and you kind of go in those areas that normally you wouldn't go, or maybe you start to dig out things that aren't necessarily on topic, but then you come back to the topic, so that's just me, that's what I do, I like to get the whole story, but then I like to dig into like how it led them to where they are, or that next opportunity, or the failure, or what they learned through that lesson, and all of that stuff, and I learned through every single one of these interviews as well, right along with you, and I'm not afraid to say that, because I'm always learning, and uh, at, uh, or in Dallas recently, when I was there, uh, I actually uh, had a a, a great uh, a great opportunity to attend a four and a half, almost five hour event or workshop actually uh, of Tony Robbins. And uh, Tony Robbins is one of my mentors. I've looked up to him for years, listened to a lot of his stuff. And uh, the one thing that he said was, if you're not growing... You're dying, and if you're not willing to fail, you're not going to grow either. Because you have to be able to put yourself out there. You have to be able to understand that failure or things that don't work out as planned are there for a reason. It's a moment in time that can actually help you and uh, and actually make that one change that really takes your direction and brings it to a whole nother level or a whole nother area. Again, I should probably do an episode on just what I took away from that event, which I probably should. So Scott, mental note, do a podcast episode talking all about what you took away from that four and a half hours. With Tony Robbins and uh, yeah, I'm still blown away and just a great, great time. But bringing it back to this interview, I just wanted to say again, thank you to David for sharing all of his all of his knowledge and his his story and his experience and and really giving it back to the community. And that is you guys, you TASers. That is because uh, you know really through these experiences we learn a ton, and uh, I know I did, and I hope that you guys did as well. So I want to remind you guys the show notes can be found at the amazing amazingseller.com forward slash 330. You can find all of those there. And I did want to bring up something really quickly, and I don't usually do this, but it's kind of like the timing is perfect. Uh, This coming Monday, which will be episode 332, so it doesn't matter really the date because no matter when you're listening to this, it will be 332, episode 332 that is, Um, I actually had a guest on that knows a lot about sourcing, and I'm not going to give it all away, but we dig deep into what he calls his sourcing funnel. Which actually leads you through how to source products and validate before you actually make the commitment to go with that factory or that manufacturer, how to find agents, how to vet them out, all of that stuff. That's going to be on Monday. I'm really excited about that because I literally just got off with him, and I'm not going to say who it is yet, so you're going to have to stay tuned, but you guys are going to be blown away. There's some actionable stuff there. He calls it the sourcing funnel. We have a checklist for you and all of that stuff, so it's going to be really, really awesome, and it really goes hand-in-hand to what we just kind of talked about in this interview because, uh, you know, David talks a lot about him having those relationships with those suppliers is really what helped him grow this business. And I think that's really, really important. And I think it's something that we don't really pay attention to and we should. So um, definitely you're going to want to check out Monday's episode or 332. So when that comes out, just go ahead and listen to episode 332. It's going to be pretty awesome. So guys, that's it. That's going to wrap it up. I'm pretty fired up today. If you guys couldn't tell, I want to leave you guys fired up. So guys, remember that I'm here for you, I believe in you, and I am rooting for you, but you have to, you have to, come on, say it with me, say it loud, say it proud, take action, have an awesome, amazing day, guys, and I'll see you right back here on the next episode.